When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 27, Count No Man Happy. By the first half of the 6th century BC, the Greek world stretched from the towering coastal cliffs of southern Spain to the gold-rich land of Colchis at the eastern edge of the known world, and from the storm-tossed northern shores of the Black Sea to the thriving Panhellenic port of Nocritus in the Nile Delta. Despite spanning much of the same territory later claimed by Rome, this was no rigid, monolithic, and militaristic empire. It was, instead, a collection of mostly autonomous Peleus, unified only by their common bonds of shared language, history, and culture. Paradoxically, at the same time the Hellenic world was reaching its greatest territorial extent, regional distinctiveness was beginning to give way to the adoption of a more unified Greek culture. The Olympic Games were joined by similar festivals at Delphi, Isthmia, and Nemea, creating a four-year cycle of events that were regularly attended by Greek elites. Local pottery styles gave way to the widespread adoption of the Athenian style, which soon expanded to incorporate imagery tailored to specific markets. Temple dedications, mainly in the form of kouroi, also became more standardized. Between 580 and 550 BC, most major Greek temples were constructed outside the mainland, in cities such as Metapontum and Locri in southern Italy, Syracuse, Selenunte, and Gila in Sicily, Ephesus in western Anatolia, and Cyrene in North Africa. With the exception of Ephesus, which we'll discuss shortly, this was probably a case of Greek colonists on the frontiers wanting to both impress their neighbors and reinforce their identity through the construction of monuments that connected them to the larger Hellenic world. They may have been particularly motivated to fly the Greek flag in precarious locations such as North Africa, where hostile native powers constantly threatened their existence. 
Another major signifier of the new era was the establishment of the common nature and form of the basic Greek political unit, the polis. Physically, a polis was defined as an urban center along with the nearby villages and countryside. The urban centers followed the general contours of Greek urban planning and architecture. They were surrounded by defensive walls and typically included a marketplace known as an agora, a citadel called an acropolis or high city, gymnasia, temples, altars, and a sacred precinct for the city's patron deity. In contrast to most other cultures we've discussed, Greek priests and priestesses weren't a separate class, but instead ordinary citizens, periodically called upon to perform certain religious duties. Constitutionally, a polis was defined by self-governance, autonomy, and independence. In contrast to Bronze Age city-states ruled by autocratic kings, the Greek polis was instead something that Greek citizens belonged to, had the use of, and obtained justice from, with citizens defined as free males who owned property. This was not democracy, at least not yet. In archaic Greece, Peleus were typically governed by archons, or chief magistrates, but to a great extent, citizens had the assurance that the archons would govern them in accordance with traditional Greek law. After passing through a century dominated by the rule of tyrants, most Greek Peleus had either reverted to rule by the hereditary aristocracy or transitioned into oligarchies governed by the newly wealthy. The exception was Athens, who would be a little late to the tyrant ball, but would make their entrance in grand style. The Athens that met Solon upon his return around 580 BC was, despite his reforms, still dominated by the great Eupatridae families. Formally, there was one clan missing from their number, the Alcmeonids, This was the family whose patriarch Megacles had tricked the would-be tyrant Chilon from his sanctuary to his death, and found his family accursed and banished for the crime. The Athenians had even gone so far as to exhume the bones of Megacles' ancestors and dump them outside the city gates. In their absence, the venerable Butad clan stepped up, with their patriarch Lycurgus winning the prestigious post of Archon. It was under the leadership of Lycurgus that the Athenians drove the ramp up to the sacred Acropolis and constructed the Temple of Athena Polias, precursor to the Parthenon, that housed a statue of the goddess rumored to have fallen from the sky. They also instituted their own Panhellenic Games, the Panathenaea, in 566 BC. These new Athenian games also featured musical and rhapsodic competitions, and may have been where the first fixed texts of the Iliad and Odyssey were performed. War with Megara over the island of Salamis had resumed under the archonship of Solon and continued to drag on over the intervening decades. In 565 BC, the war was finally brought to a successful end by a general named Pisistratus. In addition to bolstering Athenian pride, the victory also ended a troublesome trade blockage that had been contributing to local food shortages in recent years. Returning in 561 BC to a hero's welcome, Pisistratus was already nursing political ambitions. 
Unfortunately, his successful generalship and even his family ties to Solon the Lawgiver were no guarantee of success. In order to gain political power, what Pisistratus really needed was a base. At the time, the Athenian political scene was divided into three main groups. The first were the Petiaeus, who dwelled in the plains and derived their wealth from agricultural production. The current archon, Lycurgus of the Butads, represented this party. The second were the Peralioi, who dwelled on the seacoast and earned their wealth through maritime trade. This group was led by Megacles of the Alcmeonids, grandson of the Megacles, who had slain the former tyrant Chilon. The third group, the Hypericreoi, were poor hill dwellers, earning what little they could by trading wool and honey. Only loosely organized and barred from the assembly prior to Solon's reforms, it was on the backs of the Hypericreoi that Pisistratus hoped to elevate himself to a station commensurate with his ambitions. Pisistratus began his campaign by speaking out publicly, championing the lower classes and chastising the aristocracy for their abuses, an early example that would inspire later Roman populace such as the Gracchi brothers. But he knew that speeches alone would not be enough. His big play for power came when he faked an attempt on his own life, then went before the assembly and appealed for bodyguards. Speaking out forcefully against this request was none other than the general's elder cousin, Solon the Lawgiver, emerging from retirement to prophesy the coming tyranny. He was respectfully listened to, then respectfully ignored. Granted his bodyguards, Pisistratus marched in the footsteps of the earlier Olympic victor Chilon and seized the Acropolis. Just like that, Athens was under the rule of a tyrant, one with the poor masses of the city largely on his side. But taking power and holding it were two different matters. Almost immediately, the Butads reached out to the Alcmeonids in exile, seeking an alliance to overthrow the ambitious general. The Alcmeonids readily accepted, eager to return home and rehabilitate their battered reputation. Each day within the city, the aging Solon would stand outside his home in full armor, urging all who passed to support him in expelling the tyrant and reclaiming the freedom his laws had once granted. Even after the great lawgiver finally died, resistance continued to mount. By the end of the year, the situation had become untenable, and seeing the writing on the wall, Pisistratus fled the city. With the return of the Alcmeonids, Athens would soon find that it had merely traded one threat for another. Fabulously wealthy prior to their exile, the clan had made even more lucrative arrangements during their absence, and returned to the city as a veritable economic superpower. This was not too surprising, considering that one of their recent benefactors had been the wealthy and powerful king of Lydia. Croesus inherited his father's throne in 560 BC, two years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar II and a year before the young king Cyrus II claimed the throne of Persia. His sister, Ariennes, was married to King Astyages of Media, doing her part to maintain the balance between the great Near Eastern empires. Nergal-Shar-Usur's four years of rule in Babylon also reinforced the illusion of regional stability during the early years of Croesus's reign. 
Through youthful experience and general temperament, Croesus was less hostile to the Ionian Greeks than his father had been, and was generally comfortable honoring the Lydian peace with their coastal strongholds, at least for the most part. Unfortunately, since Croesus wanted to expand his Anatolian holdings, this left him with limited options. The Greeks held the west, the Medes the northeast, and Babylon ruled over Cilicia in the southeast. The only remaining target was Caria, between Lydia and coastal Ionia, ruled by an indigenous Anatolian people heavily influenced by the Greeks. Croesus led his army against the Carians, subdued them, and claimed their territory for Lydia. Next, he decided to test Ionian strength by launching an attack on Ephesus. After a brief conflict, the city was taken and occupied. With Smyrna captured by his father, and now Ephesus by his own hand, Croesus felt secure in Lydia's access to the Mediterranean, and left remaining Greek cities unmolested. Early in his reign, Croesus also developed an interest in the prophetic abilities of the Greek oracle at Delphi. In the early 6th century BC, the priests at Delphi had developed a mutually beneficial relationship with the exiled Alcmeonid clan of Athens. The Alcmeonids had hired mercenaries to help free Delphi from the domination of the nearby city of Crisa, and been rewarded with the role of middlemen, granting or withholding access to the oracle in exchange for payment. Through fortunate timing, they still held this position when King Croesus came calling. Croesus approached the oracle with a skeptical eye, wanting to test its power, a concept that was sacrilegious in the extreme to the pious and God-fearing Greeks. Fortunately, the Alcmeonids were a flexible lot, and more than happy to carry Croesus's test question, what am I doing at this very moment, forward to the oracle. The Lydian king must have been satisfied with the reply, since he would go on to not only consult the oracle on supremely important matters, but also to reward the Alcmeonids handsomely for their intercession. Croesus famously invited Megacles' son, Alcmeon, to visit the royal treasury at Sardis and take with him all the gold he could carry. Not one to let pride or appearance trump wealth, Alcmeon supposedly arrived wearing a baggy woman's tunic and loose boots, then filled the outfit to the brim with gold dust. Bolstered by such wealth and international influence, it was hard to picture the returning Alcmeonids amicably sharing power in Athens, at least for very long. Knowing this, Pisistratus waited in tentative exile for the other shoe to drop. Soon enough, the Alcmeonids were using their Delphic gold to construct a magnificent new temple atop the Acropolis, lavishly decorated with brightly painted snakes, bulls, lions, tritons, and triple-bodied men with blue beards. When the comparatively modest temple of Athena Pelias, erected by the Butods, was still favored, the Alcmeonids cast about for other ways to capture the imagination of the people. In their time of need, they reached out to, you guessed it, the exiled tyrant Pisistratus. In 556 BC, Pisistratus divorced his Argive wife, and a second marriage was hastily arranged with Megacles' daughter, paving the way for the tyrant's return. 
Both the Alcmeonids and Pisistratus were determined to make this homecoming particularly memorable. To this end, Pisistratus recruited a tall, beautiful girl from a local village, dressed her in the helmet and armor of Athena, put her in a chariot, and had her ride out ahead of him. To many Athenians, at least the more gullible ones, it was Athena herself who rode through the streets of the city, heralding the return of her favorite son. The rest of the citizens just, I don't know, really enjoyed the show? It must have been a pretty slow news week in Athens. Either way, by the time both goddess and general had reached the summit of the Acropolis, his second tyranny had been assured. It was a spectacular triumph, but it would prove to be as short-lived as his first. Offended by Pisistratus' refusal or inability to impregnate his new wife, Megacles quickly turned on his erstwhile son-in-law. He began to spread vicious rumors of Pisistratus's perversion, and eventually prompted the conservative Athenians to once again drive the tyrant from the city. Over the following decade of exile, Pisistratus would have plenty of time to mull over his mistakes and ruminate on the true nature of Athenian power. Before his next return, he'd eliminate any margin for error. By accumulating a vast fortune, cultivating powerful allies, and having a personal army at his back. Even as Pisistratus was entering his second exile, King Croesus continued to watch Lydia prosper under his rule. In service to the king, Lydian metallurgists had discovered the secret of separating gold from silver, allowing the kingdom to produce both metals of a purity never before possible. So, if they were wealthy before, just add a few more zeros, and you'll get the picture. It's also the main reason riches Croesus is still a phrase. Money being no object, Croesus funded reconstruction of the Temple of Artemis at the city of Ephesus, now under Lydian occupation, turning it into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The original temple dated back to the Bronze Age, but had been destroyed by a flood during the previous century. Designed by the Cretan architect Chersiphron, the new temple was 120 meters long and built entirely of marble, with columns decorated with intricate reliefs and housing a new ebony cult statue of the goddess sculpted by the Greek artist Endoios. Antipater of Sidon, who later developed the list of seven ancient wonders, proclaimed that the mere sight of the Artemisian caused all other marvels to lose their brilliance by comparison. Croesus's rule over Ephesus reflected his conflicted relations with the larger Greek world. In Ephesus, Lydian rule was considered harsh, but had elements of mutual respect. Croesus restored and beautified an important temple, but also reorganized several settlements, in defiance of local wishes, to enlarge the city proper. He believed in the oracle of Delphi, but only after he'd tested his powers. He appreciated Greek culture, but also considered the Ionians unwelcome visitors, and remained alert for any opportunity to expel them from Anatolia. The Greeks also had ambiguous feelings about the Lydian king. On the one hand, they characterized Croesus as a wealthy and powerful leader who both understood and embraced Greek culture, and served as a civilized bastion against Eastern barbarism. At the same time, they had no illusions about letting Ionian defenses slacken. 
If nothing else, Ephesus had made them painfully aware of the security that treaties and trust alone could buy them. In 553 BC, when Croesus received word that his brother-in-law Astyages was putting down a minor southern rebellion, it's unlikely to have raised an eyebrow. But as the conflict dragged on over the next few years, it demanded a deeper consideration. Was there even the slightest chance that his brother might fall in battle and that the Medes he led might be defeated? Aside from concern over his sister's fate, what would such an outcome mean for the newfound balance of power crafted at the Hollis? And, in the event that balance was shattered, would the new state of affairs represent a grave threat or a promising new opportunity? In 550 BC, royal messengers brought news of the betrayal and defeat of Astyages and the theft of his vast empire by the presumptuous young king of an obscure Aryan tribe named Cyrus II. Certainly, Croesus must have credited the loss to the betrayal and not to any exceptional qualities of the Persians themselves. Surely they could be no match for a loyal and disciplined army such as the one he himself commanded. And with the Medes kingless and unsure of their loyalties, the Hollis transformed from a border into just another river, and all of northern Mesopotamia took on the appearance of a very ripe apple just waiting to be picked. Even with the perfect pretext for invasion, avenging the overthrow of his brother-in-law Astyages, the rightful king of Media, and coming to the aid of his own royal sister, Croesus had no intention of launching a war without making sure the deck was first stacked overwhelmingly in his favor. First and foremost, he needed to divine the will of the gods, to know in advance whether his cause was destined for success or doomed to failure. A messenger was dispatched to Delphi, returning with the reply, If you attack the Persians, you will destroy a great empire. To the supremely confident Lydian king, it was exactly the response he'd been hoping for. Even assured of victory, there was no harm in loading the dice a bit further. His second question to the oracle was whether it would benefit him to seek an alliance. The guidance this time was for Croesus to find the most powerful of the Greek cities and make them his ally. For someone as plugged into the Hellenic world as the Lydian king, the answer was obvious. Without delay, Croesus sent word to the Spartans. The Spartan reputation as hoplite warriors par excellence had proceeded along a circuitous path over the previous century. After a stinging defeat by Argos, on the very heels of their radical social revolution, the Spartans had next turned their attention to the rich fields and plentiful olive groves of nearby Tegea, only to be defeated again and bound in the same chains they'd brought to shackle their enemies. An inauspicious beginning, but where direct confrontation failed, the Spartans soon learned to wield the formidable weapons of legend, mystique, and intimidation. Billing themselves as protectors of the Peloponnese and keepers of her ancient traditions, the Spartans pressured their neighbors to join into a protective alliance with Sparta at its head. At the same time, they embraced their former losses, using them as hard lessons to help perfect their lifestyle of constant drilling in preparation for total war. 
Over time, both efforts came to fruition. As the regional alliance slowly coalesced, incorporating even Sparta's old enemy of Tegea, and Sparta's martial skills grew to assume legendary proportions. The propaganda that preceded them, wholesale slaughter of their enemies or their own deaths to the last man, was enough to make most Peleus steer clear of any conflict. For those brave or foolish enough to challenge the Spartans, all polished bronze armor, blood-red cloaks, sharp spears, and iron discipline, the result was starting to become a foregone conclusion. When Croesus's offer arrived, trumpeting Sparta's role as most powerful of the Greek cities, it was yet another feather in their cap, or, I guess, horsehair in their helmet. The Spartans promptly negotiated an alliance with the Lydian king, pledging their support in any conflict with the Persians. Unfortunately for Croesus, it was an oath the Spartans would never fulfill. In his palace at Sardis, amid preparations for war, Croesus surveyed the terrain of the known world and found increasing confidence at every compass point. Formal agreements held both the Spartans and the Babylonians his allies. To the south, the pharaoh Amos II, though no friend of Babylon, had close Lydian ties. In fact, after Persia's defeat, maybe Lydia and Egypt could even come to terms on the nature of Babylon's future. In the fight against eastern barbarism, even the Ionians flocked to Croesus's banner, with many, including the great Milesian philosopher Thales, volunteering to serve in the Lydian army. And of course, the gods had effectively promised. A great empire was about to be destroyed. In the fall of 547 BC, Croesus marshaled his Anatolian forces and led them eastward out of the capital. Two aspects of his campaign were unusual. That it began so late in the year, and that he didn't call on the support of his foreign allies. The reason for the timing remains unclear, but on the second count, Croesus may have had full confidence in the capability of his native forces, and may have also wanted to avoid sharing in the many spoils to come. In Cappadocia, near the swollen and unbridged Hollis, Croesus engaged the intellect of Thales on a plan for crossing the river. Thales studied the problem and recommended digging a diversion upstream so as to reduce the river's flow. With lesser channels now running along both sides of the Lydian camp, the army was able to cross the Hollis, in doing so formally breaking their treaty with the Medes, and continue their march eastward. In the ancient Assyrian stronghold of Teria, Croesus had his first direct encounter with the Medes, who held the city in Cyrus's name. Croesus besieged and captured Teria, and enslaved its inhabitants, a clear sign of the fate that would befall any who opposed him. Before he could proceed any further, the Lydian king was confronted by a powerful army of Persians and Medes, led by none other than Cyrus II. The decisive battle, it seemed, was to be fought in Anatolia, and even as Croesus had carefully weighed his plans, the Persian king had also been far from idle. After spending several years solidifying his base among the Median tribes, Cyrus had heard rumors of Lydia's military buildup and decided to launch a preemptive strike of his own. 
moving quickly north along the Tigris, then west via the median stronghold of Haran. Cyrus had quickly taken and occupied the Anatolian territory of Cilicia, which pretty much put him into a state of war with Babylonia. From there, Persian forces had marched northward to confront Croesus at Teria. Both kings had enormous, highly motivated, and highly skilled armies at their command. One was destined to cast his shadow across the Near East, the other prophesied to destroy a great empire. As might be expected, the ensuing battle was epic, hard-fought, and bloody, and, with no solar eclipse to distract the combatants, carried on until nightfall. As in previous conflicts between the Lydians and Medes, the eventual result was a stalemate, with heavy casualties on both sides. The next morning, Croesus surrendered the field and returned with his remaining forces to the relative security of Sardis. Winter was coming soon, affording him the necessary time to rethink his strategy against the surprisingly capable Persian king and invoke his alliances, including the powerful Spartans, to bolster his reserves. As winter fell over Lydia, Croesus dispatched his request for aid and dismissed his Anatolian mercenaries and conscripts, intending to reassemble his forces for a spring campaign. It's hard to overestimate his surprise when, in the depths of winter, Cyrus arrived on his doorstep with the remainder of his army. As baffling as it may sound, even after centuries of Neo-Assyrian domination, most Near Eastern states still found the concept of year-round warfare both alien and unnatural, and instead adhered to the ancient and civilized tradition of seasonal campaigning. Having little interest in such niceties, Cyrus had followed the Lydian army back to Sardis, lay in wait for months until Croesus dismissed his reserves, and finally, when conditions were most auspicious, announced his presence. After traveling an almost unimaginable distance from his Persian homeland and enduring the hardships of a brutal Anatolian winter, the Persian king would settle for nothing less than total victory. Even caught off guard, Croesus was far from helpless. He was on his home turf, and his regular standing army still numbered in the hundreds of thousands, outmatching Cyrus's forces by a margin of two to one. In addition to Lydians, Croesus's army included Phrygian and Cappadocian auxiliaries and, according to the later Greek historian Xenophon, additional troops recently arrived from both Babylonia and Egypt. Opposing them were Cyrus's army of Persians, Medes, Arartians, and Arabs. The opposing forces gathered on the plain of Thimbra, just to the north of Sardis. Always open to the use of unconventional tactics, Cyrus heeded the advice of his lead general, our old friend the Median commander Harpagus, to arrange his troops into a great square formation, with his baggage camels in the front ranks. As predicted, the initial Lydian cavalry charge, distracted by the strange odor of the camels, fragmented into disarray. From there, everything went downhill for the Lydians, who were soon routed, driven from the field, and forced to seek refuge behind the walls of Sardis. The Persians quickly surrounded the city. Two weeks later, the Lydian capital fell. Bitterly, Croesus finally realized that the great empire he was destined to destroy had been his own. 
Only three years after the conquest of Media, Cyrus had won yet another incalculable victory over yet another vastly superior force, and claimed a second Near Eastern Empire for the Persians. Like the Median king before him, Croesus was dragged before Cyrus in chains. Unlike Astyages, Croesus was not a fellow Aryan of the Zagros, and there was no political gain in keeping him alive. Just as his treatment of Astyages had been a lesson in clemency, the fate of Croesus would be one on the penalty for resistance. A great pyre was heaped in the capital, Croesus was tied to a stake, and the fire was lit. As the tongues of flame began to ascend, the king of Lydia cried out to Apollo for aid. Then, in a horrible lamentation, he began to repeat the name Solon over and over again. Having no knowledge of the Lydian tongue, Cyrus asked an advisor to explain the meaning of the cry. He was told the tale of Solon's earlier warning to the young prince on the fickleness of fortune, to count no man happy until he was dead. As befitting a ruler of his legendary standing, rumors later spread that Croesus had either been rescued at the last minute by Apollo himself and carried off to safety in some distant land, or, somewhat more plausibly, pensioned off or even made a trusted advisor to the Persian king. But the Nabonidus Chronicle, probably the most reliable record of the age, ends both the life and reign of Croesus in the winter of 546 BC upon the burning pyre. He was 48 years old, had ruled Lydia for 13 years, and took with him the last best hope for Anatolian rule over the Near East. Back in Greece, the fall of Croesus was mirrored by the destruction of the great object on which he'd pinned his hopes for glory and conquest. The temple of Apollo at Delphi burned to the ground. Regardless of how it occurred, the symbolism was clearly ominous. The kingdom of Lydia and the oracle of Delphi had both been unshakable rocks of stability. Between them, they'd serve to define the periphery and the core of the Hellenic world. The destruction of both, in a single year, could only mean that the Greeks were entering a period of grave danger and uncertainty. They would soon put a name to this existential threat, the Persians. Next episode, more Cyrus, more Pisistratus, more Spartans, and, unfortunately for the Ionians, a healthy dose of Harpagus. And Nabonidus finally returns from Tama, tanned and rested, just in time to face Babylon's greatest threat since Sennacherib. All this, and anything else I can squeeze in, next time on The Ancient World.